This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you and sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Judy Southworth. Like most of you, we're on holiday now and we thought you might like to hear some of our best stories from 2021. This week, Dougal Stevenson looks at a local sea shanty which has gone viral on the internet. Bill Southworth looks at the high death rates on the gold fields. And Gregor Campbell discovers an oil bonanza in early Southland. In an unexpected development, Port Otago's early whaling history has generated a sea shanty now undergoing a revival internationally. Surprisingly, millions around the world have recently heard it. This report from Dougal Stevenson. When we lived above the harbour, the tourist boat Monarch became a familiar sight on its way down the channel to nose in at a jetty on the peninsula. Visitors to the albatross colony at Tairoa Head embarking and disembarking by Weller's Rock. On calm days, snatches of tour commentary would reach us over the water, places of historical interest being enthusiastically described. But never was there any music. No choruses of Jolly Jack Tars Yo Heave Hoeing sounded across the bay. Arguably their most uplifting contribution, sea shanties arrived with the first European sailors from distant parts of the Seven Seas. All too many years ago, my school musical curriculum taught us young landlubbers what to do with the drunken sailor, and we rousingly way-hayed until up she rises early in the morning. But as we grew older, different music scuppered the shanties, and there were new songs encouraging us to work together or apart. All that time, as it turns out, we had a shanty of our own, not that we knew it. And now Scottish postman Nathan Evans will have made the sounding of a particular shanty obligatory on tourist boats in Otago Harbour. Nathan Evans from Ardy, Scotland, posted his rendition of the shanty Soon May the Wellerman Come to the video-sharing app TikTok, and the international response has been extraordinary. Sea shanties have become an internet trend, and in this beleaguered COVID world, it seems their time has come again. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. A wellerman was so called because he worked boats owned by the Weller brothers. And the Otago Daily Times reporter Molly Houseman has written that Otakao Kaumatua, Edward Ellison, named after his great-great-grandfather, the youngest of the three Weller brothers, believes soon may the Weller man come, would have originated from Otakao, the hub of Weller's business activities. The Weller brothers arrived from Sydney to settle at Rocky Point, now known as Weller's Rock, in 1831. And after an initial setback, buildings burned by a Maori raiding party, the Willers established a whaling station and a store close by at Otakau. Edward was in charge, one of the brothers died of consumption, and the oldest, George, managed the Sydney Weller enterprise, shipping, as the shanty records, the sugar and the tea and the rum. No mention of guns. It had been said that at certain times the Otakau harbour was crammed with right whales gathered to give birth, and it was possible to leap from whaleback to whaleback from one side of the harbour to the other. 
For a few years the slaughter of whales was such that a substantial breakwater was assembled from their bones. In 1835 the wellers processed 103 whales and produced 250,000 litres of oil. At the height of its success, the trading and whaling station employed as many as 80 men, and the Weller Empire extended to Banks Peninsula and Tyre Island. To be successful, the Europeans needed to get on and mingle agreeably with the local Ngaitahu, and many local Maori went whaling with the Europeans to become very skilled whaleboatsmen. This was inshore whaling from small boats venturing not many miles offshore. The boats carried two or three long barbed harpoons and iron lances to inflict the fatal wound. A hundred or two hundred fathoms of hemp line were coiled carefully in tubs. There was a loggerhead post near the stern, round which to wind the line and hold the leviathan as it struggled to escape or sound. It was often a long-haul home, towing the carcasses back to render the blubber in tripods and skim off the valuable oil on the reeking shore and treat any flexible jawbone for corsets, binding a Victorian lady to stay in shape. But belay there, matey, the shanty may have been written long after the Weller's business had collapsed, and Edward had gone to Sydney, never to return to Otakau. The Otago Daily Times reports that Hocken Collection archivist David Murray has been able to find a possible source of the shanty. The earliest known published version was in 1972 in New Zealand folk songs, Songs of a Young Country and included a sea song composed by Taiwa, a pen name, later identified as D.H. Rogers, who lived in Dunedin from 1865 till he died in 1933. Taiwa, H.D. Rogers, had published over two dozen poems in the Sydney Bulletin between 1904 and 1907. Rogers, as Taiwa, wrote sea songs. They were natural rough ditties that sailors might be supposed to make for themselves. But there's no hard evidence. Sea shanties make us want to sing along, as an Otago University lecturer in contemporary music has been quoted as saying. Sea shanties help people feel better and connected. Well, shiver me timbers, Scottish postman Nathan Evans has posted just the rousing shanty to ease us from the COVID doldrums. While many across the globe have posted their renditions and remixes of the shanty, we can take them to the spot where the Wellermen first put to sea. It's just down the harbour. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. Thanks to the Otago Daily Times and the Dictionary of Otago Southland Biography, Southern People. I'm Dougal Stevenson for Heritage Matters. If you had a romantic vision of life in Otago's early goldfields, you may need to think again. Bill Southworth has found that sudden deaths caused by floods and snowfalls were a constant curse. The thousands of men who flocked to the Otago goldfields in the 1860s were generally unprepared for its hard upland climate. In winter, heavy falls of snow covered the ground, and in spring, Thaws turned small streams into raging torrents. Inexperienced men from the cities and miners from goldfields in warmer places like California or Australia had to face a severe climate like one they'd never seen before. As thousands rushed from one strike to another, they seldom carried with them much by way of warm clothing or decent means of shelter. 
for food. They were largely dependent on traders from distant towns who brought it to them on pack horses. Things came to a head in the winter of 1863, a year in which many would die from drowning or exposure. In mid-July, about 7,000 men were scattered around the various diggings when terrible floods unexpectedly hit. First came heavy snow, and then warm rain which caused the snow on the mountains to melt, flooding every river and stream. The Clutha rose 20 feet in one night, and the shot over 35 feet. The Arrow, usually a small stream, became a roaring torrent. Hundreds of men camped close to the riverbeds were awakened by the sudden roaring of the approaching flood and ran for their lives. In the upper reaches of the Shotover, there was a large hut in which 15 men lived. The Otago witness recorded their fate. Intelligence has reached us this afternoon of a fatal accident on the upper Shotover, where no less than 12 men have fallen victims to the raging waters. The first creek below the sand hills runs down a steep gully into the river and is, under ordinary circumstances, a mere rivulet. About 2 a.m. on Sunday morning, the ground slipped suddenly on both sides, filling up the bed of the gully entirely. This natural dam gave way at last under the great force of water which dashed down in a bore calculated to have been ten feet high. The huts built on the sides of the ravine were swept down in the general wreck, and the unfortunate occupants, with few exceptions, drowned. Ten bodies have been recovered in a very mutilated state. It's not known how many in the various diggings perished, but the Dunstan correspondent of the Otago Witness estimated it must have been at least 100. The survivors had to pick up the pieces, The floods ruined their claims and destroyed months of work. Huts, water wheels, dams and mining implements had all gone. Claims were put up for sale and hundreds headed for newer goldfields as far away as Marlborough and the West Coast. It was basically the end of small-scale mining on big rivers, which were now left to big, well-funded companies operating massive gold dredges. The reports from coroner's courts at the time showed sudden deaths from murders, cave-ins and drownings were a constant factor. Even small streams and creeks could become a death trap, as is shown by this July report from the Otago Witness. A most terrible and fatal accident occurred early on Sunday morning the 26th, whereby three unfortunate men lost their lives and a fourth escaped with serious personal injury. The four, who were sawyers, lived together in a hut some half a mile up a narrow gully which leads up out of the Bush Creek some two miles from Arrowtown. Down the gully was a mountain stream, generally unimportant, and not beyond the span of a step. Some fourteen feet above its bed on a terrace the hut was built, and a little above were piles of cut timber ready for transmission to the township. George Pullen, the only survivor, thus described the catastrophe when examined at the inquest. I was in bed, he said, with my three mates, when in the middle of the night we were awoke by a tremendous crash. We leapt out and rushed out of the hut. I found myself immediately struggling in water and among the logs of wood, and it was an hour before crawling up to a place of safety. I could not see anything of my mates, but after a time heard groans. 
When daylight came, I went up the gully and found John Brown, one of the deceased, lying on his side, his legs covered with logs and stones. I could not extricate him. I went down to two men who lived some way below, and they went to his assistance. He died on his way to the township. The body of John Bronze, another of the deceased, was found some distance from the site of the hut, much disfigured. The third man, known by the name of Frank, was only found this afternoon, having been completely buried in sand and debris. Just as the miners began to recover from the floods, there was a deep fall of snow all over Otago, and a thick mantle covered the area between Altram and the lakes. Roads became invisible and impassable. The old Dunstan Road was covered by three feet of snow, and the outlying camps were cut off. One coach tried to get through, but was trapped when it hit five feet of snow. In another area, the snowdrifts were so deep that the only thing that could be seen were the hut chimneys sticking out of the snow. Eighteen men and women were trapped at Deep Stream, in flimsy accommodation, but a rescue party managed to get through to them. Two of the miners were in a bad way, with frostbite. The Otago Daily Times reported on the 26th of August. The two men forwarded on by the relief party arrived at the Dunstan Hospital about noon on Thursday last. Their hands slightly, but their feet were much bitten. The right foot of one of them was one mass of putridity from the toes to the ankle and will most likely have to lose his leg. As they both sat in the dray, the stench from their wounds was positively sickening. No one would credit it without seeing it that the frostbite was so serious an affair. It is precisely the same as a scald, although not done with heat. You do not know you've been bitten beyond a slight numbness. A small black patch like that produced by a pinch comes at the very extremity of the fingers or toes, which soon spreads all over the hands or feet, accompanied by a great swelling. The points then burst under the nails and bleed very much, the nails coming right away. In fact, all the flesh actually rots off the member affected. On the 6,000-foot-high Old Man Range, inland from Roxburgh and Alexandra, the storm was more severe and the death toll much higher. There was a gold rush at Campbell's just beyond the range, and 500 men, most with no experience of the mountains, flocked there. Small parties staggered back through the snow, crossing the high range in a howling blizzard. A bitter wind plucked at the men as they staggered through the snow up to their armpits. Many, unable to withstand the conditions, sank down to die in the snow. When it melted, many bodies were found. The death toll was estimated at 30, but it may have been much higher, as many of the miners did not know one another and no registers were kept. Most miners did not even know the names of one another. Trampers still come across their bones today. Even when the summer arrived at the end of 1863, the mountain storms did not end and there was another tragedy in December. A party of three from Campbell's crossing the range again was caught in an unexpected storm. The only one to survive was found with ice clinging to his jumper and icicles a foot long clinging to his hair and beard. In 1928, the government erected a monument at Gorge Creek on the highway between Roxburgh and Alexandra to acknowledge all those who died on the Old Man Range during these terrible storms in 1863. 
I'm grateful for much of this material to Robert Gilkerson for his book, Early Days in Central Otago. This is Bill Southworth for Heritage Matters. Orepuki, a small town between Riversdale and Tuatapuri in Southland, once looked like giving the Arabs a run for their money. In the 19th century, oil was found in shale deposits in the area, and it soon formed the basis of a new industry. This report from Gregor Campbell. In the pub at Orepuki, on the southern coast of the South Island, is a grey piece of rock sitting on the bar. It doesn't look anything special, but it will burn if you light it as a miner discovered in the 1870s when he used a similar piece of stone for a hearth. It is oil shale. The story of its exploitation in the Oropoki area is one of hope, economics and disappointment. The main type of liquid fuel used in New Zealand in the late 19th century was kerosene used for lamps. The oil from shale could also be processed into the other main form of lighting, candle wax. The area of shale in the south coast was leased by a mining company after certain assurances from the government of the time with reference to the price of kerosene. Imported kerosene was subject to customs duty, which made the price for the consumer high enough for a local product to be competitive. On this basis, the mine was opened, the bricks burned to build with, and the equipment for a refinery bought. The oil began flowing with great promise of national self-sufficiency and local prosperity. But, for those living most locally, the shale refining was a mixed blessing at best, as reported in the Canterbury Times. The shale works here are playing havoc with the settlers' houses within a mile or more of the works. All the houses have turned a bluish black, which needs to be seen to appreciate the ugliness of the change. An oily or tarry stuff floats in the air in calm weather, and in one night will spoil the appearance of any house it may alight upon. It was generally admitted that I had as nice a place as any in the district, but it looks a very ancient affair now, so black and dirty looking, is it? And the smell! I can make some attempt at describing the colour of the houses, but the smell is beyond description. It comes like the dirt, most in calm weather, and it is like all vile stinks in creation, well mixed and stirred up. It penetrates everywhere. It cannot be kept out of the house, and many a time I have been awakened by it in the night, and it is so nauseating that I often feel as if a sudden movement would bring on a fit of vomiting, and I am not so sensitive to it as some people who say that the smell is killing them. That is a bit overdrawn, but it is really very bad indeed. Clothes left out in the way of the deposit from the air must be washed again if they get shaded, as they call it, and one washing will not get out the black streaks either. The water tanks get the oily stuff in them, and you can see it floating about on top of the water. So you see that the shale works are not an unmixed blessing to Oropoki. The manager of the works tells us that the fumes and the deposit will kill all our trees, and even the grass, and he says there is no remedy. The people are up in arms about it and will try to find some remedy. The neighbours did not have to suffer long. Shortly after the refinery's opening, the government removed the import duty on kerosene and, with that, the profitability of the local industry. The same product from the USA merely needed to be drilled for and pumped out of the earth 
instead of paying miners to work it. In April 1902, the refinery was immediately shut down and mothballed. The imported product had its monopoly again and, despite the removal of import duty, was not cheaper at the shop. New and more efficient equipment was installed at Oropoki, but the refinery did not reopen. It made the news again, however, in 1914. Singular methods were applied to the felling of a damaged chimney at the Oropoki Shell Works the other day. About 12 months ago, the chimney was struck by lightning and was damaged to such an extent that it split from top to bottom and a very considerable portion fell away. The portion remaining swayed playfully in the wind and as it threatened to fall on adjoining buildings, it was decided to pull it down. The chimney was, however, so insecure that no workman could be induced to carry out the task of affixing the tackle. It was therefore decided to drill through the base of what remained of the chimney with rifle fire and a .303 rifle and a stock of ammunition were procured. At a safe distance, a rifleman set about pumping bullets into the base of the chimney and, after a good deal of chipping, the structure tottered and fell to the ground. It is stated that the amount of ammunition used approximated 200 rounds. The First World War prompted reassessment of Southland's shale resources, as did the gift of a surplus Royal Navy cruiser to the country. The New Zealand Division of the Royal Navy was forced to refuse an oil-burning ship in favour of an older one which used coal. The rise of the automobile was another event which seemed to offer the shale works, still mothballed then after 20 years, a new lease on life. In 1935, a Southland Times reporter visited and found the operation ready to get back to work. The works are just a mile out of the township and a tram line connects them with the railway. Large double gates with the forbidding notice, trespassers will be prosecuted, bar the entrance, but there is a side door. To those who have no idea what shale mining means, the first view will come as a surprise, for the large yard encloses several imposing brick buildings, the bricks themselves having been made from the clay pit nearby. There are offices, workshops, engine rooms, pump house, refineries, refrigerating chamber and stills. But over them all towers the double row of huge retorts. A round of the buildings is made and the machinery inspected. Everything is covered with a greasy preparation that prevents rust, and that it has done this was proved to one sceptic by the caretaker, who scraped off some of the protective covering to disclose a burnished steel shaft as bright as the day it left the workshops. A quick turn of the wrist and a large flywheel spins easily on its axis, while pistons glide smoothly backwards and forwards for a moment. Yes, if we had steam up, all these machines will be running in five minutes, comments the Guardian as we walk through an echoing engine room. Everything is in splendid order. All pipes are kept tarred, and there is no sign of decay in any machine or building. 35 years ago, these works were in full swing, and 100 men were employed. For 24 hours a day, the work went on. The shale, a slate-like rock, was mined in the 1,200-acre property, trolleyed to the crusher, then hoisted 30 feet to the hungry mouths of the 20 retorts. Here, it was subjected to great heat, and the gases formed passed off into the condensers, where the gases were cooled back into liquid form, a sluggish, tar-like substance which was then run off into a 12-foot well. From there, it was pumped into the stills, 
and the process of refining began. This rotten rock, which was first turned into gas, ended up by producing kerosene, petrol, tar, sulphate of ammonia, 20 different grades of oil, alum, Vaseline and wax. It is hard to believe, but in those days the petrol was allowed to run off as waste. There was no use for it. There was eventually no use either for the equipment which had sat on the South Coast hillside for 40 years. At the beginning of 1939, the equipment was sold off and dismantled. A new war shortly after might have made the retort smoke again, but it was not to be. All that is left is a brick building in a field, a large iron tank beside the highway and, of course, a piece of grey rock on the bar of the Oropoki Tavern. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. This programme has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members. It can be contacted at southernheritage.org.nz. That's southernheritage, all one word, .org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.